You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. If you are looking for a place to read and grow your intellectual life, welcome. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts. Before we get started in our sections 40 and 41 of Hannah Arendt and the Human Condition, please leave us a five-star written Apple Podcast Review. We really need those so that we can get more guests on the show. The more we have on Apple Podcasts, the better. If you're not on Apple, do not fret. It still helps us out if you can go and leave a five-star review on whatever you listen to, and uh, that will really help us get more and more guests on the show. Secondly, if you want to follow me and comment on this podcast, at Thomistic Dan on Twitter or at Real Solomon's Corner on Truth, or on Facebook. We would love to hear your thoughts on the show there as well. We check those on a daily basis, especially Twitter. We're on there quite a bit. And then do not forget that we also have a giveaway coming up for Andrew Clavin's A Strange Habit of Mind. We pre-ordered 10 of those books to support non-woke writers, and we want to do that. So if you have a writer you would like us to support as well, please make sure that you reach out to us on any of the platforms just mentioned, and we'll take a look. But in order to be entered in to win the Strange Habit of Mind, you need to subscribe to our newsletter at solomonscorner.com. Go to the book club link up in the top, or if you're on your phone in the hamburger menu, make sure you go to the book club page, and when you're on there, you can see a button that says subscribe to book club. If you do that, you will be entered in to win a Strange Habit of Mind copy. But also, don't forget... There's no guarantee that you're going to win, so make sure you pre-order Andrew Clavin's book and support non-woke writers. That being said, we're going to dive into the human condition, sections 40 and 41, and these are on the, i got to get the titles of them, Thought in the Modern Worldview and the Reversal of Contemplation and Action. The section 41 is much longer for those who are just listening, but in section 40, what we find is that Cartesian doubt has basically hit its apex, and in this short little section, she is a, is essentially arguing that thought, in, introspection, or the idea of the I think, therefore I am, has reached its peak. This creates this lack of referent out into the external world. And so one of the problems is, is that she says there's this circular reasoning that happens within the sciences, which have really come to a massive amount of influence and power in thought and history and philosophy, that they basically dominate everything as a result of this rise of Cartesianism. And she says that it ultimately leads to a circular form of reasoning that basically, because the scientist doubts everything that's in front of him, he comes up with a hypothesis and then he builds instruments in order to test the hypothesis. But the instrument that he designed is based on a hypothesis he wants to confirm. And so it ends up in this circular reasoning. So obviously, if you have a hypothesis and then you say, well, I need to build this this instrument in order to affirm the hypothesis. Well, now you're you're self-affirming through action your hypothesis right from the get-go. Now, as she says in a footnote, one of the things that gets scientists out of this is the... um, is the fact that the scientific experiments do actually work. People actually do get healthier. Life spans actually do become longer. But again, this means that Cartesianism and the external world of doubt cannot be as radical as maybe Descartes wanted it to be. Regardless, the consequences, though, of Cartesianism 
coming into the mainstream culture and being absorbed as, well, I doubt my senses and I just trust the scientists, is what she's going to get into in section 41. So this rise of Cartesianism in the mainstream culture and academics as well basically caused a rejection of philosophy as an influence. And so she says here, the philosophers became either epistemologists worrying about an overall theory of science, which the scientists did not need, or they became indeed what Hegel wanted them to be, the organs of the zeitgeist, the mouthpieces in which the general mood of the time was expressed with conceptual clarity. In both instances, whether they looked upon nature or upon history, they tried to understand and come to terms with what happened without them, the philosophers, that is. Obviously, philosophy suffered more from modernity than any other field of human endeavor, and it is difficult to say whether it suffered more from the almost automatic rise of activity to an altogether unexpected and unprecedented dignity, or from the loss of traditional truth, that is, of the concept of truth underlying our whole tradition. So the question is, did philosophy end up being shut out because of Cartesian doubt, or did it become rejected because of the rise of science. And I think that this is, there's a lot of phenomenon that she gets at that I think helps us understand a lot of the impact that this had on theology as well, because as she mentions, philosophy is the handmaiden to theology. So you take out the handmaiden and theology's got to find a new, a new one. So theology also turned to the sciences as well. And so I think this is what explains in a lot of anecdotal ways, maybe not in a general generalization, but with a lot of, well, no, we, we can say that there's definitely a generalized trend towards evidentialist apologetics, for example, or evidentialist theology, where it's, if I have a, the science can justify, for example, that uh, the world is six days, six 6,000 years old, for example. Well, the Bible affirms this, and it's not that we make a philosophical argument for it, we make a scientific argument for it. Similarly, the old earth creationists will do the same thing, because they're both using the same handmaiden. If you went before the Cartesian doubt, you might see philosophers trying to use their philosophical arguments to justify their interpretations of, of the text. But now we're in the era of scientism, and so with the ejection of philosophy and the rise of doing rather than contemplation, we find that philosophy has been you know, sent basically to the corner, science has taken the forefront, and any other discipline that wants to be considered legitimate has to have mathematics or science at its core. That said, this ultimately leads to uh, some weird kind of things. If Hannah Arendt, you know, we're going to assume she's right just for the sake of discussion. But this might explain, for example, why somebody who's good at engineering might be asked to suddenly teach your Sunday school class. Because after all, if you're really good at science, then you've got to be good at contemplation. And so this is, this is one of the things that she gets at in this section 41. And so she'll say here, the point was not that truth and knowledge were no longer important, but that they could be won only by action and not by contemplation. And so action in this context is doing scientific experiments, demonstrating some kind of truth. And so certainty of knowledge, she continues, 
Certainty of knowledge could be reached only under twofold conditions. First, that knowledge concerned only what one had done himself, so that its ideal became mathematical knowledge, where we deal only with self-made entities of the mind. And second, that knowledge was of such a nature that it could be tested only through more doing. And so this becomes the what she calls the reversal. There's these reversals in history of philosophy. There's nominalism and realism. That's the reversal of do we actually have a human nature or are we just a grouping of particulars that we can call whatever we want and it's constantly changing? Is reality static or is it changing? That's Parmenides and Heraclitus. Uh, is, uh, is it an idealist version of the world or is it a materialist version of the world? Somewhere there has to be something that connects these polarities of thought. And, if you, and she has this, this quote here that kind of gets into all these different reversals that happen throughout history. The one we're in right now, according to her, is the idea that the contemplative life has been reversed, uh, which used to be, I'm going to figure out what to do by thinking it through. Now it's, well, what has man done that tells me what to think? And so... From that, you can get things like follow the science, right? You can get these ideas of, well, there's this huge tradition and corpus of scientific knowledge that tells us what we ought to think, not, and, and therefore what we ought to do. So the doing precedes contemplation, and contemplation then informs the next set of, of doings. That's her whole point. And so she'll say this, though, but this isn't just in the idea of action and contemplation. It's also in philosophical systems. So she says, in this context, I am concerned only with the fact that the Platonic tradition of philosophical as well as political thought started with a reversal, and that this original reversal determined to a large extent the thought patterns into which Western philosophy almost automatically fell wherever it was not animated by a great and original philosophical impetus. Academic philosophy, as a matter of fact, has ever since been dominated by the never-ending reversals of idealism and materialism. So she's going to go through this list of reversals. Of transcendentalism and immanentism, of realism and nominalism, of hedonism and asceticism, and so on. What matters here is the reversibility of all these systems, that they can be turned upside down or downside up at any moment in history, without requiring for such reversal either historical events or changes in the structural elements involved. The concepts themselves remain the same no matter where they are placed in the various systematic orders. Further down, it is still the same tradition, the same intellectual game with paired antitheses that rules, to an extent, the famous modern reversals of spiritual hierarchies such as Marx's turning Hegelian dialectic upside down or Nietzsche's reevaluation of the sensual and natural as against the supersensual and supernatural. Now, as a side note, you don't have to know all those different systems to get at what she's talking about. She's just saying that history seems to pivot between these reversals, the antithesis between the two. So if you're an atheist, then theism would be the other side. So we're in a very atheistic kind of uh, polarization right now. We're, we're moving more towards that than we are in theistic times. So there's a reversal there. But the point is, is that in each of these systems, especially if you study the history of philosophy, you'll always find some hint of truth in those systems that you have to figure out how to incorporate into your own. And here on the, on the Solomon's Corner uh, mission, if you go to our About Us page, our, our goal is to create everyday thinkers, not necessarily people who need to get PhDs or any of that kind of stuff, but people who have a desire to dive deeper into their thought life and 
and to live it out in a practical and meaningful way. And there's a question of, well, do you have to actually be religious in order to have a meaningful thought life? And I would say yes, because of this reversal that happens constantly throughout history. There has to be something in your paradigm that anchors you in between the polarities, that anchors you between materialism and idealism. You can't just be materialist and you can't just be idealist. There's elements of truth in both of those. This is one of the things that you learn is that in modern uh, academics is is you'll hear somebody say, I'm a Cartesian on that point, or I'm a a Thomist on that point, or I lean more Platonic, or "I, I lean more Aristotelian on this. And so they've become this philosophical mutt, so to speak. Well, I think that religious revelation, and history bears this out, that doesn't necessarily have to be Christian, can actually anchor you down so that you actually have something that kind of keeps you grounded from going to the extremes of either system. And so what we find in what I would espouse, and what's in the book The Intellectual Life by uh, A.G. Sertiange, which was the basis for starting Solomon's Corner, we find, I think, that Christianity in, in Christ does give us that anchor point for our intellectual lives. Because within, within, the, within the, the Bible and within the, the, the Gospels, especially through Christ, there are these back and forth and these affirmations of, of realism and you know, the doubting of the senses. We talked about doubting Thomas and Peter the other day, but we can use another example. The fact that Jesus' miracles are never the same right? This doesn't mean that science should be rejected because Jesus is not a scientist and he's not doing what's, you know, repeatable experiments. You know, he's not using mud to heal every single blind man's eyes. He's using various different miracles to convey that he's the authority of reality. On the flip side, though, we also have this idea of, well, you can trust reality. When, when they see Jesus walking on the water, they say, well, is it a ghost? And Jesus calls to them, and Peter knows that it's Jesus, and he, he comes running out onto the water because he can trust his experience with Jesus' voice through his ears. So there's this, this merging in the Gospels, in Revelation, which is important to start with because you might not be a very sophisticated thinker, you might not be someone who understands all of the philosophical implications of all these things that she talks about in these reversals. But if you actually do have an understanding and you read the Gospels or you read the Bible with this lens of, well, what, what philosophical system is, is, is God touching on here versus uh, over here? And trying to work that out in your own modern life, I think, is how we prevent this reversal, this kind of philosophical bipolarism from occurring in our own personal lives. So to wrap up, we find that this modernity has basically ejected all philosophy to the point at which it's just basically a cultural commentary. And this has problems for theology because it ends up making leaders, especially pastors and and the practical side of this kind of thing, when they look for people to help out in the church, they're more likely to pick somebody who's scientifically minded because it gives them more cultural clout. But then on the flip side, or the second point, is that we have this polarity, this reversibility and, and back and forth that starts with Plato's cave and works its way all the way up to our current state with, you know, realism versus nominalism, you know, 
idealism versus materialism, and it just keeps going and going and going. And if we do not find an anchor point, we're going to be tossed back and forth by the waves of philosophical polarity. So I hope you enjoyed this segment of the book club. Again, if you have comments or thoughts, make sure you send those to us on all those different social media channels at Thomistic Dan or at Solomon's Corner. And, uh, and we'll, we'll definitely engage with you out there on the socials. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget, keep thinking.